Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. If food is your fetish, well then I am supplying the tools. The culinary landscape is ever-evolving, and on this show, you'll hear from chefs and pastry aficionados, restaurateurs, molecular gastronomers, food bloggers, enthusiasts, cookbook authors, wine geeks, beer experts, and more. We dish on fabulous food, wine, and spirits, travel, health, and living the best life. So I hope that you will not miss a weekend of delicious conversation with me. I have lots of gastronomic inspiration at chefjamie.com, where I'm always serving up seconds. And on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, on social, you can find me at Chef Jamie Gwen for my daily dish. I love that the summertime is perfuming the markets. Fresh strawberries are coming to life. Corn and tomatoes are getting sweet. And there's no doubt, zucchini will soon overtake your garden. So if you want to master a technique or become the best cook you know, well, then this show is for you. This is where food lovers rejoice. And whether you love to cook or love to eat, then I like to say we can definitely be friends. Now, maybe you love food, but you hate waste. Well, me too. So I like to kick off this show with a tutorial of sorts. And if you loathe waste as much as I do, I have some ideas rather of ways to brilliantly use up bread. So there's this wonderful, lovely bakery loaf that you buy, right? And you really appreciate its day one freshness. But there is one loaf of bread and many genius ways to use it. I love a a squishy loaf of pre-sliced bread, but I will say it pales in comparison to that fresh loaf of artisan sourdough from the local bakery or grocery store. And one of those freshly made loaves offers an exceptional amount of character and it amps up the sophistication on your table. But after a day or two, the freshness begins to wane and it leaves you with a less desirable loaf. And this past week, I found myself with a bevy of bread. So since I don't advocate for waste and I was raised by a mom who believes in waste not want not, I thought I would share some genius ways to use up your loaf as it begins to lose its fresh edge. Now, here are all the ways that you can make fresh bread in whatever form you buy it in. Sure, to literally get completely consumed. So we'll start on day one. You mix up a few of your favorite fresh herbs from the garden with softened salted butter, and you get this compound butter that you smear over sliced bread at the table, and you're a culinary hero, right? You can also opt for making the obvious, like a sandwich or avocado toast, or you could just pull out the loaf with cheese and charcuterie for a dinner of wine and snacks. That's my kind of dinner, by the way. Uh, You could use the bread to make uh, crostini or bruschetta as an appetizer. If you're hosting, um, you could throw a few thick slices of bread on the grill and then spread it with hummus or top it with heirloom tomatoes, and you have a brilliant starter. And that's what you do with a good fresh loaf of artisan bread. 
Now it's day two. Your bread is still fresh enough to do some of those things you could do on day one. However, it's got a little more crust on the outside and a little less fluff on the inside, right? So we're now calling this day old bread. And by the way, it is best to make recipes that call for just that day old bread because it's sturdier and it absorbs liquid well, but it still keeps its shape. So bread pudding is the first thing that comes to mind for me. You can make it savory or sweet. Personally, I make chocolate bread pudding, but you could make tomato bread pudding for a side dish to go with uh, grilled chicken or meat. I love a bright summery panzanella salad to use when you have aging bread. Uh, Panzanella is that much loved Italian bread salad where you take preferably ciabatta and ripe juicy tomatoes and olives and capers and copious amounts of olive oil and you get this wonderful textural seasonal salad. Now, French toast, by the way, another great idea for day two artisan bread. Now, day three, the bread is is bound to be crusty, and this is the time that you use it up. So, you make croutons or homemade bread crumbs. I will often size, uh, oftentimes rather, cube the bread, bite-sized cubes, and then toast them on top of the stove. Um, you could use butter or olive oil, or better yet, bacon drippings. Sometimes I'll cut them or even tear the bread into really big format, and then I'll roast them in the oven. I drizzle olive oil and butter. And I like that sort of rustic, hearty crouton for a big oversized salad. And then fresh breadcrumbs, quick and easy in your food processor. And by the way, best to do with whatever bread you have on hand. And it could be a mix of bread. It doesn't have to be fancy. It could be English muffins and pita and some of that, you know, artisan sourdough thrown in. And you get the best results when the bread is slightly stale for breadcrumbs. Very fresh bread gets very gummy in your food processor. By the way, if the bread isn't stale enough, you put the slices of bread into like a 300 degree oven until it's just slightly crusty. And then you fill your food processor, uh, not too full, about halfway uh, because it can jam up the blade. And you pulse until you get the size crumb that you like. And then you make more than you need because you store them in a zip top bag and they go in the freezer. Bread crumbs or fresh bread crumbs rather store best that way. Now, I use them as a binder, of course. You can mix them into meatballs or bind crab cakes, or you can mix with Parmesan cheese to top macaroni and cheese or a casserole. Last but not least, though, let's talk about bread storage for a moment. The length of time that bread keeps depends on the type of bread itself and whether or not it has additional ingredients added to help preserve it. Like for example, French bread only stays fresh for a day, but a store-bought sliced loaf lasts, you know, four or five. So the age-old question is room temperature, fridge, or freezer? Where do you store your bread? I believe that the best way to keep fresh bread, preferably artisan bread, is in a plastic bag to combat the loss of moisture. I keep it tightly stored and I keep it at room temperature if I know I'm going to go through it. 
Now, it seems counterintuitive, but the fridge does not prolong the life of a loaf. It actually accelerates the change in structure, and it could become harder sooner. So I try to embrace the bread on the counter as quickly as possible. Now, conversely, the freezer is your best option if you want to keep bread fresh beyond a day or two and seal it well in a freezer bag, of course. Did you know that every single day we waste 24 million slices of bread? I don't know who counted, but that's a lot. So if you were to ask me the ultimate recipe to make with leftover bread or stale stuff, I would tell you it's an Italian bread and tomato soup or as the great Italians call it, Papa al Pomodoro. And I like blistered cherry tomatoes with the torn, crusty bread to soak up all the juices. I use tomato juice as the base, fresh basil, really good olive oil. It's just six ingredients. It's like Italian goodness in a bowl. And it is so good. And I'd love to share it with you. So I'm starting a weekly bonus radio recipe this week. After 16 years on the radio, we've got to freshen it up. And I am offering to email you this weekly bonus recipe. All you need to do is send me a note via email, jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at chefjamie.com. Jamie at chefjamie.com. This week, I will send you my Italian bread and tomato soup recipe happily, and I'd love to know how yours turns out. Okay, please don't touch your dial too, because there's so much more to learn and to eat, of course. Coming up, Chef Jamie Perviance of Weber Grills, my longtime friend, is sitting down to share his expertise, and we are going to get our grill on. Also, we'll teach you to milk braise later in the hour. And if you're not milk braising a chicken for Sunday supper, you are missing out. David Leet is here of Leet's Culinaria. You know him, and I love his passion for food. Okay, grab a snack and come on back because the delicious conversation continues. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't go away. Times, great food, grand grilling. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, celebrating the start of summer. My longtime friend, Chef Jamie Perviance, throws a killer grilling party. And he's back to share his best grilling tips and tricks to make your barbecue come alive with flavor. It is the most forward-thinking, visually instructive, and easy-to-use grilling cookbook ever 
published with more than 800 stunning photographs illustrating each step of the new 100 plus recipes. Weber's ultimate grilling is a step-by-step guide to barbecue genius and it is on sale now. Jamie Perviance is the world-renowned grilling expert who has a special knack for teaching anyone how to do it better. He's a Stanford and a CIA grad. We share an alma mater, the latter. And his food career has included New York Times bestselling cookbooks and recognition from the James Beard Awards. For the past 20 years, he has served as Weber's master griller and teacher, and he has some flavor bombs up his sleeve because, if I may say, he's the bomb. Jamie, it has been way too long. How are you? Hi, Jamie. (laughs) I am great, particularly after that very generous introduction. Thank you very much. Very well deserved. Congratulations to you. Okay, I think this is another extraordinary feat because I have to tell you, your recipes, I think, just keep getting better. What makes cookbook number 17 different than the rest? Well, this book is a technique book. I mean, it's it's a recipe book like a lot of cookbooks, but the real emphasis was on technique. And Having done this for a while, as you say, I've learned by talking to people, but they, what they really want is to see it. It's one thing to read about it, but they want to see exactly how to do it. And because I can't be in everyone's backyard all the time, the best thing is just to create <laughs> phenomenal amount of really nice photography. Yes. So as you said, over 800 photos. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Like five, ten times as much as the usual cookbook. Right. So that's what's really... Different. Right from the start, you open this thing up, and it's just a visual treat. It's just overflowing with photography. It is. I'm going to totally abuse the word bomb for the next 10 minutes, because <laughs> it is. It's like it's an explosive photobomb is what it is of everything you want to know as to um, how toasty the bread is for your bruschetta, to how to char corn and rub that tenderloin. I mean, it really is a, a visually stunning book that takes you through every step. And whether you're a novice or a connoisseur, there is always something to learn, in my opinion. I, you know, you and I as chefs and with a culinary education, I've gone page by page and thought to myself, why didn't I do that? That's brilliant. You know, there's so many wonderful uh, insights throughout the book. So uh, really kudos to you on that. Well, thank you. And and I echo what you're saying. You know, I I continue to learn every day, Um, Mm -hmm. whether I'm cooking on my own or I'm cooking with somebody else or I'm reading somebody else's book. The world of food is just too vast for anyone to kind of master in a couple of years. So uh, i that's part of the fun, too, is just continuing to learn and, and then to share. And, and that's what I've done in this book. I, I wanted it to, each recipe to be almost like looking at a video hmm. where you don't even really need to see the words. I mean, they're there to support you and give you the details. But the, the step-by-step photos are like watching a video and... And with that, you get so much more information than words can convey. Oh, definitely. So uh, it's a labor of love to to look at it. It also um, makes me want to lick the pages. Made me very hungry. Um, So I I picked out selfishly my favorite topics and recipes, and I thought we would just build a menu together. This is like everything I would want to eat if I came to your house. 
So, right. yeah, some of them um, maybe a bit more novel or a, a good reminder of grand things that come off the grill and can th- throughout the summer long if we're cooking along with you with the new book. Weber's Ultimate Grilling. Okay, Jamie, bruschetta off the grill. There is something just so decadent about the smokiness that the grill imparts on the bread. And I loved your big bruschetta piece. Yeah, I think actually the word bruschetta means, I don't speak Italian, but I think it's something like over the coals. So it's completely authentic that um, we're, we're doing it this way. And you're right. You know, toasting a piece of bread makes it taste better, but toasting it over a live fire oh, yeah. just adds a whole nother layer of complexity and, and wonderful flavor. And then you marinate the peppers that you've thus charred on the grill. I mean, really proving that your backyard barbecue is better than, you know, almost any appliance in the kitchen. And then those peppers go on top of the toasted bread that you've made cheesy and delicious. I, I mean, really, how bad could it be? It's not bad at all. I guarantee it. Yeah, it's almost like a really great slice of pizza, Mm -hmm. you know, with the charred bread and Mm -hmm. the melted fontina and Mm -hmm. uh, the peppers that are just marinated in kind of an an olive oil, uh, vinegar, garlic kind of dressing. Delicious. But the flavor of the pepper from the uh, fire and the flavor of the bread and the cheese just a really nice way to start off a great party. Yes, perfect. Along with your roasted carrot hummus with pita chips. That's my other chosen starter. I'm glad you, you like that one. Oh, I, love, I love it. I love it too. Um, you know, here in California, and I guess all over the country and all over the world, really, hummus is a big deal. Yep. And it's really adaptable. I mean, I love a classic hummus, but I think that adding some sort of roasted vegetable to it is is wonderful if it's the right thing. And something about the roasted carrots over the fire, um, it, it's lovely. It's beautiful. Look at it. It changes the color, obviously very orange, yes. and adds a level of sweetness and, and roasted veg kind of quality. Uh, the key, of course, is how you roast them, um, and that's, again, what this book is all about, is the, is the technique, you know, cutting the vegetables to the right size, setting up the fire for indirect heat, you know, roasting them for the right length of time so that they puree properly. You know, all that has to happen. And what's so nice is that you see all that in the book. You, yes. know, you don't just hear me saying, well, just roast them till they're tender. Well, what does that look like? You know, what should the carrot look like at that point? And how should it look when it's pureed? And how should the fire look? All that stuff is clear in this book. Yeah, it, very much so. And that's why I alluded to the fact that there's a lot of learning to be had by all of us to take our grilling to the next level. You talk about the importance of the teas, right? The time, text. Can you review them for us, please? Sure. The four T's are temperature, time, techniques, and tools. And this is just my short checklist. It's what I recommend to people who, uh, well, whether they're beginning or intermediate or advanced, I think all of us are sort of susceptible to being distracted at the grill um, and just kind of giving up and winging it. You know, things happen. There are people milling around, cocktails are flowing, you're having a great time, (laughs) people are getting into conversations, and, you know, there's a pool game going on, whatever. And sometimes the grilling gets neglected, and and people say, well, what do I do? What do I do? And I just say, all right, make sure that the temperature is right. You know, the grill is at the right temperature for whatever you happen to have on there. 
the timing is right. You know how long it's going to be on there, and there's no shame in having a timer there or using your phone or your watch or whatever. Uh, employing the right technique, you know, whether that's something as simple as indirect heat versus direct heat. And then, of course, using the right tools is very helpful. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, Chef Jamie Perviance of Weber Grills. We're grilling up a storm, and there's more right after this. Chef to Chef continues. Two Jamies for the price of one. We're grilling with the guru, Chef Jamie Perviance. I think the more time you spend in front of the grill, the better a grill master you are. That's how championship barbecuers got to the level that they have been able to achieve. Right. I agree. And it's mostly because the technique gets better. Yes. The instincts get better, too. You can, you can just start to see things. You can, you can mm. feel the fire. You can see the color of the food. You can know, you know when to add coals. You can, you can smell. You can hear. All that comes with experience. Um, yes. So you do get better. Yes. But even a beginner, you know, right from the start, you're doing your first hamburger or some Italian sausages. Same thing. Just get the temperature right, the timing right, know what your technique is and have the right tools at hand, and you're much better off than what most people do, which is just, you know, throw the meat on there and cook it till it looks done and hope (laughs) things turn out okay. (laughs) Sure, right, haphazard. Um, Okay, your burger is not uh, straight on the grates, nor is mine. I have always used what I call a steak plate, or you call... uh, you call it a, a a metal, what did you call it earlier? Well, it's a griddle or it's sometimes called a plancha. Right, and I use just a, a, you know, a metal, I call it a steak plate, essentially. Oh, I know what you mean, those hot plates. Like a hot plate. Fajitas on exactly, or, yeah. exactly, right on my grill. It does, mm-hmm. it does make the ultimate burger. <laughs> and so, it makes a great burger. Yeah, let's talk about it. I have a couple in the book. I have a classic burger that you do right on the grates, but you do achieve a certain texture and flavor on a, on a hot metal surface like a, like a plancha or a griddle or a hot plate. Right, and you could take your flat top if you had one that you were using indoors or there's one on your grill, right, and fire it up and lay the burgers down. That crust is just, I mean, I, I don't think it can be beat. Well, there's so much surface area, right? The meat is, all the meat is in contact with that hot griddle, and you are developing not only uh, the crust, but all new flavor compounds. I mean, there's just hundreds of flavors are created in there. This is really inspired by the great diner burgers of, Mm. you know, American folklore. So great to have that crusty, flavorful crust, and then uh, the juicy meat inside. And, of course, adding a little sauce and some nice toppings. It's just an amazingly gratifying experience. You add spicy yellow mustard to your uh, mayonnaise ketchup. Uh, That's my Russian, you know, that's my house-made Russian dressing. You make something similar to that? I do, but it doesn't have spicy yellow mustard in it. Um, And so I'm going to give you credit, but uh, create an addition for sure. Yeah, try that. And I add a little hot sauce as well. I of saw course, that. You know, subject to taste. Yeah, no, but just, just to spike it up a little bit. 
Um, for dinner tonight, I would love, how do you like this? If you would make swordfish with blistered tomatoes, please. Um, what a beautiful dish. I mean, so colorful and perfect for tomato season at the, you know, height of summer. And again, proving that placing a pan uh, or a flat top, another vessel on top of the grill makes it, you know, really your all-purpose cooker. Yeah, you know, accessories have really opened up a lot of new possibilities. And this is one where it's really practical because when people are doing fish, you know, they're often worried about it overcooking and getting dry. So in this case, what I do is, is sear the fish over direct heat, you know, right on the hot bars, and then put them in a pan where some tomatoes have, have blistered and, and wilted down and created kind of a sauce. And the fish sort of just gently cooks for the last few minutes in that tomatoey sauce with capers and herbs and all mm. kinds of good things. And it's, it's beautiful, and the fish always comes out juicy that way. Yeah, because you're essentially combining techniques, right? You almost have a bit of braising going on, albeit minimally, but there's moisture. So the fish stays, I, I would know, I, I would suspect, I, I can only think, really tender, and you permeate that flavor of the tomatoes through. I can't wait to to make it. Good. I oh. think you'll be happy. So good. And you can bring the whole thing to the table. You can lift the pan right out of the grill. You know, Smart. you've got a heat-proof surface. You put it on the table. It stays nice and warm and looks gorgeous. Just screams summertime yeah, and, you fabulous. know, good living. Fabulous. All right. Um, define, if you would, flavor bomb. Because you have this <laughs> really cool... Uh, sort of addition to the book where um, toward the back, I found a flavor bomb your asparagus, flavor bomb your grill baked potato. And I'm all for a flavor bomb. So what does, what does a flavor bomb uh, constitute to you? You know, it's an easy variation. Mm. It's something that you can choose from because there are usually four or five or six of them. Uh, once you've mastered the basic technique of whether it's a burger or asparagus or potatoes, now you've got four to six options, a handful of ingredients that you more or less just assemble and then drop onto that main ingredient or bomb those, that main ingredient, if you will. Yes. So I think it's just reflective of the way a lot of people like to cook today. Mm. You know, not too much time in, involved, um, but lots of, lots of flavor. Um, yes. and so. That's what it is, and, and it's, it's photographed in a way that I think is quite stunning. People just have to see it, but it's, this is kind of Instagram meets the grilling world. Yes, it is, and they'll just have to get the book. Um, can you flavor bomb our asparagus, uh, our asparagus rather? I, I'm so hungry. I'm mincing words. Uh, with Parmesan hot sauce that you make, that looks oh, yeah. crazy good. <laughs> Parmesan cheese and hot sauce, um, it's, it sounds like an odd combination, but it's really, really good. So is the sweet chili glaze, yes. which is something that um, uses a little bit of that Thai bottle. This is mostly condiments that you can buy at the store. You mix them together. In this case, I put a little of the glaze on before they're grilled, and then I grill them, and then I put a little more on afterward. Mm. This stuff is addictive. I mean, I tell you, I can eat a pound of asparagus this way. I'd like to see that. I could eat an entire or maybe two of your grill-baked potatoes, preferably uh, with caramelized onions, mushrooms, and blue cheese, please. Yeah, I'm with you. I okay. mean, put that next to a steak for Father's Day. Oh, you know, yes. 
You're going to make somebody very happy. Yeah, no doubt. There are such wonderful ideas. I mean, new, inventive, inspiring ideas and recipes in this book. You've outdone yourself. And I am proud to call you my friend. And I am thrilled to support your ongoing glorious grilling efforts with Weber. Uh, I will say it is your best book yet. It only took you 17. Not bad, Jane. <laughs> Well, yes. Um, <laughs> we all get better with practice. Oh, no so doubt. Lots of time to practice. Sure. And, the, uh, the first one was you. brilliant. It's been a pleasure to be on the show. Oh, I, I enjoy you. being your friend. Thank and you. I, the only thing that would be better is if we could actually sit down and, and grill together sometime and enjoy a meal and a glass of wine. I, I would like that. And I will commit to making that happen. It, it has been too long. And I am very grateful that you have come back to grace the show. By the way, book number one was pretty darn fabulous, too. Book Number 17, though, is Weber's Ultimate Grilling, a step-by-step guide to barbecue genius. And it is written by world-renowned grilling expert and Weber's master griller and teacher, Jamie Purviance. And the book is available now. It is everything you need to know to become a barbecue genius. And it's the first of its kind. 800 stunning full-color photographs that step-by-step illustrate everything you need to know to put out a truly glorious grilled meal. The book is available on Amazon and on its way to bestseller. It just released. And you can follow Jamie's culinary escapades at jamieperviance.com and on social at jamieperviance as well. Okay, dinner and wine on the calendar. That's, That's our next plan. Chef. Yay. Yeah, I look forward to it. Um, thank you again for coming back on. I hope uh, that uh, we get to toast each other soon. Great. Thank you, Jamie, so Take much. Care. Thank you. You too. Time for food news this week. It's turning out to be a very sweet summer because in a press release that was uh, shown last Monday, in fact, the Oreo brand confirmed that Marshmallow Moon Oreos will officially be hitting shelves in honor of the 50th anniversary of the historic Apollo lunar landing. Do I sound excited? Well, I am. Because these limited edition cookies are stuffed with marshmallow flavored cream, and they are expected to be available mid-June coming up. So, each pack of Marshmallow Moon Oreos features three custom cookie designs inspired by the moon landing. The best part, though, aside from the marshmallow filling in the chocolate cookie, is that the Oreo cookies come in a package that glows in the dark. I can't wait to see it. This year has been uh, very good for new Oreo flavors, by the way. Um, there's the maple cream, the latte Oreo thin, the mint chocolate chip ice cream Oreo. So I have no doubt that the brand's newest flavor is going to be out of this world. I couldn't help it. Sorry. (laughs) Marshmallow Moon Oreo is about to hit shelves soon. So watch for that. So as the delicious conversation continues, oh, there's so much more to eat. Don't touch your dial. We'll be back in just a moment. Food is life. Create and savor yours. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. 
David Leet is the three-time James Beard award-winning food writer and founder of Leet's Culinaria, where he shares hot food and dry wit. I'm proud to call him my friend and a grand contributor to this program. He's the author of The New Portuguese Table and the very moving, honest, funny, and real memoir entitled Notes on a Banana. Now, David is an expert on many things, and his blog has been much adored since 1999 for all of its deliciousness. I'm proud to have him as a culinary contributor to this show, and he's back, this time with insight and instruction on a method that you need to know about. If you are not already milk braising, well, you are missing out. It's a classic Italian technique, old school style that creates the most fork tender, delicious pork and chicken. And the bonus in the end is this velvety, luscious sauce. I mean, what could be better? So I asked David to return to the show to talk milk braising, and I am delighted that he obliged. Hi, David. I'm glad to have you back. Hi, Jamie. It's always a pleasure. Well, thank you. Okay. When I think of milk braising, I remember that milk plays what is a very vital role in a classic bolognese, right? Mm-hmm. So yes, perhaps braising in the stuff isn't so odd after all. It's not. And what's interesting is, you know, we, we kind of have this question mark, especially Americans, uh, because we go, what, braise in milk? But yet we braise in so many other things. We braise in wine, we braise in stock, we braise in water, we right. braise in everything, braise in beer. And, mm. But we think when it comes to milk, how, that's, how is that possible? But it's such a classic Italian technique, like you said, and the contribution of the milk to the flavor and the tenderness of the meat is extraordinary. And it's something that I think people don't do nearly enough. And it's very homey. I, I agree. And it is very comforting. Very, very comforting. And even though, you know, people would think, oh, I, I need to braise in the middle of the winter. No, it's one of those wonderful things that you can braise throughout the whole year using milk because I didn't really realize. I knew about pork and I knew about veal, but then, you know, there's chicken and also and other poultry. And in Portugal, we always braise our salt cod after it's been reconstituted. Yes. We will braise it in milk before we then add it to a dish. Right, and I didn't even think of that. You're right, to take out some of that salty brininess, the milk lends itself in so many wonderful ways to the texture and the flavor of the finished dish. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so here's the thing. It is a simple classic, and I agree with you. You make a great point. It is not just for hearty winter meals. There's something light about it that I think lends itself beautifully to spring, but it is gaining newfound popularity. And I always tease, like, you know, don't sell your jeans. They'll they'll come back into style. style. But it's true. Like, milk braising seems to be the, you know, uh, concurrent, comes back around, super easy. Oh, I forgot. I should be milk braising that Sunday chicken. And because it's very super easy... I'd like to break down the science of it, though. It's the lactic acid in the milk that tenderizes the meat, right? It's the lactic acid. And then there's also the sugars in the milk. So as it starts to cook down, it starts breaking down the meat. So Mm. you can get a a somewhat tougher cut of meat. Um, Traditionally in in Italy, they use loin. Now, there's a caution here that is when you have uh, when you have there's a caution here in Italy and also in Portugal and Spain, 
their pork is so much fattier and has so much more fat in all parts of it. Yes. Our, our pork is bred to be so lean, mm. so it breaks down a lot easier. Um, I would suggest if someone wants to start this, start with a shoulder roast. That, that's a wonderful pork shoulder roast. It's a great thing to start with. But they simply just take the, the pork in Italy, they'll take the loin, they sear it really well in olive oil or perhaps butter, depending what part of Italy you're in. Mm-hmm. They throw in some aromatics, everything from thyme and garlic. Uh, some people have put in uh, lemon zest, which I think is a nice little kind of spark there. And uh, then they just add the milk. They turn it down very, very low. And they just keep turning the meat. And then in time, it just breaks down beautifully. Yes. But then oh. what happens is, this is the bonus, is the um, it starts to evaporate some of the, the liquid in the milk, some of the water, and it starts to coagulate. It looks really like, oh, my God, I've just destroyed dinner. Yes. And if you think you've destroyed <laughs> dinner, you're on the right path. Yes. Because you haven't. You're actually doing the right thing. And then it starts to break down and it starts to separate. And those start to caramelize. And there's that rich mm. caramel flavor. And, of course, it's got a lot of the pork fat and the mm. pork juice in there. And it's, it's a bit sweet. And yes. it's broken down the meat. And it is just an extraordinarily simple and extraordinarily pure kind of cooking. You're set to return next month. And yes. I'm very excited um, because we are highlighting... Uh, another new, well, actually a novel method that you've mm-hmm. created that's getting uh, lots of attention in the big time press. So yes. if that's not a tease, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about David Leet's uh, reimagined brine when he joins us next. So you wouldn't want to miss a weekend of delicious conversation. David, it's always a pleasure. Here's to milk braising and thank you for sharing your passion. My pleasure. Always great to talk to you, Jamie. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of what I hope made you oh so hungry. I hope that we've inspired you to cook or get your grill on and that you'll tune in every weekend for more delicious inspiration. So I am all about kitchen appliances, and I don't think that they should just use up precious kitchen cabinet space. And this is my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation for the hour. Your waffle iron does way more than waffles. Oh, yes, you can make super crispy hash browns. Using your waffle iron to make hash browns gives you those crunchy bits on all sides and you get silky smooth potato inside and you never have to fuss over them or flip them in a pan. So... Preheat your waffle iron next time you're making breakfast or brunch on a weekend and squeeze shredded potato with a kitchen towel till it's as dry as possible. Combine it with salt and pepper. I like to brush the waffle iron with melted butter, pile the shredded potatoes into the waffle iron, overstuffing it a bit and close the lid. You want to cook until it's crispy on both sides. The potatoes are tender throughout, golden all over. Probably take about 10 minutes total. And I have to tell you, they are super delicious. I will post inspiration for my waffle iron hash browns on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen, where I hope you will become a friend and a fan. And I will meet you here next weekend when there is lots more fabulous food in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. (laughs) 